The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Well, good morning. This morning, uh, well, at this time, our threes and fours are dismissed to their classes. And for everyone else uh, in the room, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. This morning, we're continuing our study into the prayer that Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for us that we find in John chapter 17. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's all right. Uh, We've got plenty. Uh, So if you just want to raise up your hand, one of our church members will be sure to get you a copy of the Bible. And you can turn with me to John chapter 17. So this prayer that we're studying over the next few weeks is is a window. It's a window for us to peer into and see the glory that is shared between God the Father and God the Son. It's a glorious prayer where we learn about God's heart towards us. God's very heart towards sinners like you and me is clearly seen in John chapter 17. And we marvel at this reality that Jesus prayed this prayer 2,000 years ago. Oh, lights went off. Cool. Uh, Sorry, that caught me by surprise. Uh, Yeah, Jesus prayed this prayer 2,000 years ago, and it has been preserved for us to read and to study and to see what God desires for us. So... What should our disposition be as we approach a text like this? I think we should approach it with with fear and trembling, knowing that this is holy ground. We're entering into a prayer between God the Son and God the Father. I mean, communication between the Godhead. So let's read verses 6 through 13. That's where we'll be studying this morning in chapter 17. And then we'll pray for God's help to understand his word. Verse 6, Jesus continues his prayer and he says this, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. For they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer of the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let's pray. Lord, we've already 
sang and seen the glories of the incarnation, that what was long promised was, was, was fulfilled in Christ the Son being born. Christ Jesus Christ putting on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. What joy that is as we look back and, and dwell upon your first coming when we think about the way you came to live a perfect life and you came for the purpose to die on the cross for our sins. So I pray this morning as we study your word that we would be freshly reminded of your love for us. We would be freshly reminded of, of the grace and mercy found in Christ Jesus that it was extended to us. And I pray that we would be encouraged. We would be so encouraged knowing that you are glorified in us. That's a crazy thought, but I, hope, I pray you would help us to understand it. So I pray that you would help me, Lord, uh, move me out of the way quite literally and speak through me. And, uh, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, in this text, we're going to see three observations. And then going off those three observations, we're going to see three lessons that we learn. So three observations. Observation one, lesson one. Observation two, lesson two. Observation three, lesson three. So that's kind of the outline that we're working through here. So when we first encounter this prayer, we've already talked about it a little bit, but, but we must again consider who it is that is praying the prayer. And this will enlighten for us more of, of, of God's heart towards us. So that's observation number one. And it might seem pretty plain to you, but that's all right. Observation number one, Jesus, the Son of God, is praying. Observation number one, Jesus, the Son of God, is praying. We looked at this in detail last week. We, we really looked at what it meant for Jesus to, like, glorify God. What that meant for Jesus to manifest his name. But but the fact that God is praying is astounding. It's wild for us to consider. Look at verse 6, the first words he prays. He says, I have manifested your name. Doesn't that perfectly sum up Jesus' life? His mission to manifest God's name. What does, it, what does that mean? It means to put on display the glory of God. That's Jesus' main concern, isn't it? From the time he was born until the time where he was crucified. His main concern was that God's glory would be known. More than he cared about his own death, he cared about God's glory. The Lord declared in Isaiah a prophecy hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Isaiah 52, verse 6. This is what the Lord prophesies. He says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day when Christ comes, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am, and here he is. In Christ. John 1.18 tells us that Jesus' birth put on display the glory of God. Luke 2.14 tells us that the angels sing glory to God when he is born. Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus' growth, his, his life, puts on display the glory of God. Matthew 7.29 and other places in the New Testament or in the Gospels teaches that Jesus' teaching, his authoritative teaching, puts on display the glory of God. We see in all four Gospels that the crucifixion uniquely and clearly puts on display the glory of God. Jesus, the manifestation of God's glory, is praying. Just like you and I are instructed to pray. 
Have you guys ever had this thought before? Or have you ever just thought, why in the world do I pray? Have you ever felt like your prayers are meaningless? If God, have you ever had this thought? If God knows everything, if God is sovereign over everything, if he has predestined everything to take place, if he knows everything about me and everything in the world, why should I pray? Who, does it really make any difference? Well, you should pray because Jesus prays. Like, Jesus knows more than we could ever know the perfect and complete knowledge of God. He is God, is he not? God the Son is not less than God. He is God. He knows everything. He was, the, I mean, the, the world was created through Christ, and yet he prays. Jesus, Jesus tells God the Father things in his prayer that God already knows. This tells us, this tells us something miraculous about who God is. Lesson number one, based off of observation number one, lesson number one, God the Father desires that we come to him in prayer. God the Father desires that we come to him in prayer. He wants us to come to him in prayer. Remember how Jesus addresses his father, or how, how he addresses God at the beginning of his prayer. He says, Father, and friends, through Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters. That means that what? We've got the same father. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of God's fatherly nature. This is his quote when he says this. The human parent enjoys listening to the child saying things and telling him things which he knows already. He doesn't say, I already know that. Psh, I don't care. No, no, no. He enjoys it. He does not resent them, nor does he regard them as a waste of time. He derives great pleasure from them. And we are to learn from this that our Heavenly Father delights to see us coming to Him and stating our requisitions and giving our reasons. Listen, there is nothing too small. There's nothing too insignificant. There's nothing too boring for God not to care about. There's nothing too small, too insignificant to draw all of God's fatherly affection all of his tender care towards you, all of our groaning, all of our requests, all of our praise, all of our sorrows that we bring to God in prayer are of the utmost interest to him. And so much interest to him that, that he actually promises, God promises, he desires that we pray so much that he promises to help us to pray. Romans 8.34, Paul says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. What is Christ doing right now? He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Not only that, but Paul tells us, what is God the Spirit doing right now? Romans 8, 26, just a few verses earlier. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We've got two intercessors. God the Son at the right hand of the Father and God the Spirit in us pleading with us when we don't even know what to pray for. In all of this, we learn that God really does care for us. God cares for you like a perfect father. Matthew 5, 27 through 30 says this. And which of you, 
being anxious can add a single hour. That verse is wrong on the screen. I apologize. Uh, and which of you, being nervous, can add, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all this glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? God desires that you come to him. Lesson number one. But who? Who? Jesus is praying. That was observation number one. But who is Jesus praying for? That's observation number two. Observation number two is this. Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for his disciples. Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for his disciples. And because Jesus is praying for his disciples, yes, he's praying for those 11 that were right around him. But in effect, he's praying for us, right? All of us are disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? To to, to follow Christ, to be a learner of Christ. So when we look at what it means to be a disciple, goodness, does it not apply to us? So this prayer is for all Christians, in effect. But let's look at verse 8. Verse 8, Jesus tells us what he's praying for in his disciples. He, or he tells us what it really means to be a disciple in his prayer. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. According to verse 8 on the screen, disciples of Jesus are those who have been given the words of God. They are people who have come to know the truth. What, what is the words of truth that they believe? That Jesus really is who he says he is. That Jesus is God. The disciples may not have understood everything perfectly. In fact, we looked in the Gospel of Mark, and we saw that to be true time and time again. The disciples didn't understand perfectly everything in great detail, but what marked the disciples different from the rest of the world? They received or accepted the words from Jesus. They did not see it as something that could be true, maybe, and then move on with the rest of their lives. But what do we see in Scripture of... What do we see in Scripture whenever the disciples are shown the glory of Jesus? What do they do? They drop everything and follow him. Nathaniel, whenever he's called by, whenever he's drawn out by Jesus in John 149, Nathaniel responds this way, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The disciples dropped everything. They left their jobs, their comforts, their families behind in order to follow, follow Jesus, because they saw him as worthy. They, according to verse 8, received the word. They have come to know in truth that Jesus really is who he says he is. He's from, he is God, he's from God. He's the Messiah, he's the Savior. Look back with me at verse 6. We learn, learn more about what it means to be a disciple in Jesus' prayers. Look with me at verse 6. He says this, I have manifested the name, your name, to the people that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. According to Jesus in verse 6, 
Disciples are the people that God has manifested his name to. Disciples are the people that belong to God and were given to Christ. Disciples are the people who kept God's word. And once again, in my study of this passage, um, my study of this passage, one of the initial questions I had was, I read verse 6 and I came to the end of it, and I was thinking about the disciples that, are, that Jesus is praying for, and I thought this thought. Jesus says, they have kept your word. And I, I remember all the ways in which I saw the disciples not keep his word, right? We go through the gospel of Mark, and what do we see? We see, we see them continually stumbling and putting their feet in their mouths. We see them asking ridiculous questions like, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand at glory? We see them, Jesus, three times saying, I'm coming to die and rise again. And then three times the disciples saying, no, you're not. You're wrong about that. And yet, Jesus says of them, they have kept my words. And once again, when you compare the disciples to everyone else that heard Jesus' words, they stand out, don't they? They stand out. Why? Because Jesus drew them to himself. Jesus, they stayed with Jesus when everyone else left. James Edwards comments, and he, he helpfully comments this when he writes this. When other, quote-unquote, disciples judge that Jesus teaches too, hard thing, too many hard things, the twelve stay with Jesus. What do they say in, in they say, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Even when there was risk to life and health, the closest disciples self-consciously chose to remain with Christ, however flawed their courage might have been. This simply means that as compared with the rest of the world, they have been drawn out of it and constitute the nucleus of what will become the expanding messianic community, the church. Listen, Jesus is not looking for impressive people to follow him. Jesus is not looking for your special cool things to add to his tool belt. Jesus is looking for ordinary people who believe that he's the son of God. We see this even more in verses 9 through 10, don't we? Jesus prays this, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for my disciples whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus, this is the most astounding thing in this passage of Scripture, verse 10, the end of verse 10, when Jesus says, I am glorified in my disciples. Like, what's going on? What's going on here? Listen to Jesus' claim here is, listen, I have glory, right, because I'm the son of God. Not only do I have the, do I have the glory of God, because I am God, but I want to share it with you. Like, I, I want to share my glory with these imperfect people. So the disciples are invited. The disciples are a part of, it's how God's glory is, is shown in this. So this is where we get to lesson number two. Observation number two, God praying for his disciples. Lesson number two off of that is God, or Jesus, is glorified by our faith. Jesus is glorified. God is glorified by our faith and our faith alone. Remember who the disciples are. Do we remember them? They're flawed. They're not perfect. 
In fact, they fail a lot. The disciples have nothing to offer. They're not noticeably wealthy men. They're not powerful. They're not all that impressive. They come from blue-collar jobs, and the ones that don't have blue-collar jobs come from jobs that were shameful. These were the disciples. Nothing to offer except their faith in Jesus. And because of their faith, what does our verse say? Verse 10, Christ is glorified in them. So friends, if Jesus is glorified in his disciples, then because we are his disciples, Christ is glorified in us. That's a tremendous thought, is it not? Like, in the same way, we have nothing to offer. Just like the disciples, we have nothing to offer. Not many of us are born of of, of status or power or wealth. Nothing stands the test, but God is glorified in us, not because we've got it all together and we, we're awesome people, but because we've confessed with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So God is glorified in us because of what? Simple faith. We have faith that Jesus is who he says. And that's good news, is it not? That's good news because, man, like, it's, impo- it's important for us to do really awesome stuff for Christ's name. It's important for us to go unto all the world and share the gospel. Of course, that's important. It's important for us to grow in our Christ-likeness. It's important for us to grow in our knowledge of God. It's important for us to grow in our Bible reading, our understanding of the gospel It's important for us that we join a church, submit ourselves to each other, but that's not what justifies us. That's not what justifies us. That's not what gives us access to God the Father. It's not our working in any way, but we're saved by faith and faith alone. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life so if you're here this morning and you've never believed in jesus guess what it's that simple belief in jesus you don't have to work for it you don't have to do your part so god can do his part and meet him halfway no no no. you've done your part already you have sinned and god will do his part he will save if you trust in him You simply place your faith in Jesus, that he really is who he says he is, and he really did die the death that you deserve to die because we're all sinners. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that you can go free. And if you believe that, if you believe that the testimony of Scripture is that if you place faith in Jesus, you will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus tells us what eternal life is in John 17, 3, doesn't he? In the beginning of this prayer, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, if you've never trusted Christ in this room, you can know God today. You can know God. And it's as simple as placing your faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So Christian in the room, be freshly reminded of God's love for you in Christ. Belief in Jesus is what causes, is what causes you to be saved and, what, and it's how Christ is glorified in you. It's not your service. It's not your ability to be faithful. It's not your innovativeness. It's not your leadership. It's not your great works for his name. But it's your simple faith that Christ is God. What love? What love? Because if it was any other way, I would mess it up time and time again. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So do you believe that? Do you believe Does your prayer life reflect that? Do you believe that really it's your faith in which God is glorified, not how awesome you are? And before we move on to the last observation, like, can we just stop and ponder what a privilege it is to be a Christian? What a privilege and a joy it is, I mean, for for God to be glorified in us. That's a magnificent thing to ponder. Like, how often do we stop and consider something like this? Now, because I'm a Christian, I am going to be a representative of Jesus Christ. And Christ is glorified in me. No matter if I feel like it or not, he is. And that is our business. I can't afford to slack off. We can't afford to take these things for granted. We can't afford to give our time, our efforts, our energy, our spare time to anything else. Because they're of no eternal value because we are in Christ. What a privilege it is for Christ to be glorified in us this morning. So we've looked at, we've looked at who it is that's praying, right? Jesus. We looked at Jesus is praying for his disciples. But lastly, what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray for? Well, that's observation number three. Observation number three, Jesus prays for unity and protection for his disciples. That's what Jesus prays for, unity and protection. (coughs) Look at verse 11, sorry. Look at verse 11 with me to see Jesus pray for unity. Verse 11, he says this. I am no longer in the world, but they, being the disciples, are in the world. I'm coming to you. Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus petitions, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Unify them. What kind of unity does God, or does Jesus pray for right here? He prays for unity that's that they may be one, even as we are one. So he prays that the unity shared between God the Father and God the Son will be the same type of unity and the thing that would unify us. Like, God is the unifying thing, is he not? So if, if we are, or since we are united with the same type of unity that God the Father and God the, the Son share, that ultimately means that it can't be broken because the Unity between God the Father and God the Son, it will never be broken. 
So the, same, the unity that we have will never be broken. It's the only type of unity that lasts because it's supernatural unity. Think about it with me. What are the things that we unify around in this life? Maybe we can unify around being Saints fans. But eventually we'll have a year, like this year, where we have disunity because we keep losing. Uh, they might make decisions. The Saints franchise might make decisions that some people agree with, some people disagree with. And eventually, guess what? The Saints will cease to exist in light of eternity. If we might be united around a band that we like. But what happens if, uh, if that band releases music that like a new, they branch out into a new genre? And some people love it, some people hate it. And guess what? That band will eventually break up and they will cease to exist. But the unity that's founded in the Godhead is a unity that will never be broken. It's a unity that will not disappoint. It will forever exist. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says this. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. We have all been adopted through, son, through Jesus as sons and daughters with the same God the Father. So Christians in the room, us, church members, Jesus prays that we be unified. That's what Jesus cares about, our unity. We are united together in the, the strongest of bonds. So the teenager who is in this room, the teenager in this room who is a Christian, has more in common with the 90-year-old in this room than they do maybe with their own family members. Their family members are not Christians. We in this room, Christians, we have more in common with the Christians in Russia than we do with our neighbors and family members who are not Christians. Do we feel that? The unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ because we share God the Father. And Christ has given us glory so that we may be one. And this is the type of unity that Jesus prays for. Also, what does he pray for? He prays for protection. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 again. Halfway through verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That which was given to him, his disciples, Jesus guards. He keeps. And what a comforting thought is that. Like, how comforting is that? Jesus is our good shepherd. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, he says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 6, he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen, it is impossible for Jesus to grow tired of you. I know you might feel like he gets tired of you all the time, but it's impossible for Jesus to get tired of you. And he has promised that you will forever be his. And he knows you're going to sin and mess up. It's not contingent on your faithfulness. 
not because of your power, it's not because of your strength, but it's because he is the good shepherd. When we fear that our faith is too weak, Christ holds us fast. When we feel like our sins are too great, his mercy is more. When we feel like we can never measure up, we can never read our Bible enough, we can never pray enough, we can never share our faith enough, we're just not good enough. Guess what? It's our faith that saves us, not our works. When, we're, when, we, feel, when we fear that we're too prideful, God's grace is more. When we have slipped up and sinned the sin that we said we'd never do again, the good shepherd calls us back to himself with his perfect patience. It will never run out. So do not believe Satan's lies. God does not accuse. Satan is the accuser, but God is the righteous justifier. God does not accuse. Satan accuses. Don't believe his lies. God is glorified in you. So what lesson do we learn based off of the third observation? Lesson number three, let us, the same way that Jesus did, let us pray for unity and protection. Let us pray for unity and protection. Let's pray with Christ this Christmas season for unity and protection. Listen, unity is hard, is it not? That's why you have to pray for it. Sometimes in our flesh, we feel like being disunified. But Jesus commands that we find unity, and he prays for our unity. It's on God's heart to pray for us this way. So let us not neglect praying in the same way. Let's pray for unity. Let's pray for ways in which we, individually, can lay down our preferences, can lay down our wants to seek the unity for the common good. Let's pray that we would have the mind of Christ who did not, who humbled himself, did he not? To the lowest extent. Paul instructs us in Romans 12 this way, verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray and strive for the unity that's already ours in Christ. And let's pray that we be protected. Jesus prays this kind of thing in the Lord's Prayer, does he not? And in Matthew 6, he says this, when he models how we should pray, he prays, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Pray that, we be, that you be protected from temptation. Pray that you be protected from evil. Not that you would never see persecution in the world. We know from Scripture's thrust that we will face persecution. But we also know that we can pray that God will keep us in his name. God will hold us in his loving arms. Pray, that, pray for that. We know that God will never release us to the hands of the evil one. And that's the type of thing that Christ prays for. And that's what we must be praying for. And guess what? He is faithful.
He will do it. Jude 24 says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before his presence with his with of his presence with glory with great joy. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glory with great joy. So so the the promise in scripture and what Jesus prays for is that we will be protected now and guess what? We will be protected for the rest of our lives until Christ comes again or he brings us safely home until he brings us to where he is our last verse verse 13 he says jesus prays this but now i am coming to you that's what he prays to god the father i'm coming to you so one day we will join christ in heaven and he has promised that those who are justified will be ultimately finally glorified that this Mortal body will put on immortality. And so we long for that. We long for Christ to come. We long for Christ to come again, that he would no longer tarry, that he would bring every promise to pass because we know that he has the power to keep us until we're home with him at last. Let's pray for unity and protection. As we close, we're going to sing this song in response, and I think it, it pretty well sums up the thrust of this passage. He will hold me fast, says these are the three verses. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. His promises are through life. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. He wants us to come to him. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. When he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the one, you come from God, that you are the son of God who died in our place. Lord, we know that you are true. Lord, we know that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We know that the cross is true. We know that we are justified not by our works, but by faith and faith alone. So help us now to respond in faith to respond in the wonder and bewilderment that, that you love us and that, that, that you have shown us your glory and that you will keep us until the end and that you're glorified in our midst. Help us, Lord, to respond as only the right way we should respond, by praising your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.